Good morning. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us today, I'm really thrilled that at the beginning of 20, what is this, 2018, uh, you've decided to join us. I, I uh, am, we're so honored that you would be here. Uh, before we jump into what we're going to talk about, we're in week two of our series, Me Too. Uh, let me tell you two things that you need to know. One, if you are a partner, one, that's our word for member, next Sunday we'll be holding elections for our board. We'll be uh, approving three people to serve on that board. And if you're a member, of, again a partner, 15 years or older, you'll be able to vote in that next Sunday. So just want to give you a heads up on that. And then today, after the service, you'll have a chance to say uh, well wishes, good words, blessings, hugs to Rich and Missy Evans. Rich and Missy uh, are leaving us, or we're sending them to be a part, to be the lead pastor at Monroe uh, Church of the Nazarene in Monroe, Michigan, and this is their last Sunday with us, and so uh, we want to send them off in a really great way, so you can do that at the close of the service today. Well, I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. We always read the scriptures together, and uh, we stand out of honor for God's word, and I'll read it aloud. It's from 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, it'll be on the screen, and um, you can follow along, and here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged the city of Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And so David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, uh, we're exploring in an honest way, because we try to do that as a church. We try to talk about things that are, people are really struggling with, not the things we think people are struggling with. This whole phenomena of Me Too, and if you were here last week, we talked about how Me Too is a cry. It's a cry from women saying, do you notice? Do you see? Do you understand? And if you weren't here, I'll tell you another story just to kind of, as men, from our perspective, maybe it'll help us understand. Uh, last week, I kind of talked to the victimization of women. This week, I'm going to talk to us as men. Uh, but just to help us kind of understand this, um, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and uh, our two boys, our youngest would have been about two years old, not quite two years old. And we were traveling somewhere. I don't remember where we were going, but we had a long drive. And so we stayed the night in a hotel uh, that had a pool. And we were in the pool. And I remember I was sitting on this side of the pool. My wife was in the water right here. And our oldest son was, I think, in the, in the hot tub there in the pool and in the hotel. And, and our youngest son, Corbin, was on the other side of the pool. And you know how it is when kids are little like that? You tell them every moment, don't do that, don't do that, stop, 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 walk, 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 walk. You do I was doing that as he got up and he walked around the pool because I was too lazy to get up and walk with him. And my wife was obviously very pregnant. And he walks around the pool and I'm like, keep, stay away from the pool, 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 all the way around the other edge of the pool. It wasn't a big pool. But he did this. He walked to the edge of the pool and looked at us and went, right into the pool, face first. I'm thinking, my child's going to die. I, my wife said she's never seen me move faster. And it was one of those slow moment moments, like, and pulled him up out of the water. Uh, here's, here's why I'm telling you this story. Here's the metaphor, okay? I hope it lands right for us as men and doesn't offend you as women. 
in a way, this Me Too thing, this Me Too phenomena, is women saying, we've fallen into the pool. Are you just going to sit there? Now, I, I, um, one of the things I do as a pastor, it, not all the time, because there's, there's too many people and I personally can't do it, but uh, when someone has surgery, I'll often go before the surgery, early in the morning usually, and I'll pray with that person, just as a reminder that as a church, we're with them, that God's with them. Uh, my presence really means nothing, but it's just a, a representative thing, and I, I show up and I pray. And what they're getting ready to do is they're getting ready to go under the knife. And you know why they cut when they do surgery, right? What's the end goal of that surgery? What? Healing, right? So I, I need to tell you as guys, just I, there's not seatbelts. If there were, I'd tell you to buckle up. But this is going to cut. But I need you to understand the reason that it's going to cut is so that there can be healing, okay? I'm, just, I'm talking to guys this morning. Just need you to know that. Stay with me. Um, I've got three questions that we're going to uh, ask this morning to help us as men Help us know what to do. And here's the three questions. The first one is this. What would Jesus say to men with power? Important question. Uh, what do men who follow Jesus, what are they supposed to do with their power? And then the last one is, where do we get the power we need to live in a different way with regard to this issue? What would Jesus say to men? What do men who follow Jesus need to do? And where do we get the power to live a different way. Now, you kind of get this, even if maybe you're not necessarily uh, a religious person, you, just from understandings about Jesus, what Jesus would say to men in power, Jesus always confronted injustice wherever it was. Women were on the, the side of injustice in his day. The poor were always oppressed. Uh, the sick were basically thrown out. Children were no one. The reason we value children today and prize them and protect them was literally because of the example of Jesus. In Jesus' day, children were nothing. They were property. And Jesus always had a way of putting people in their place in the right kind of way. He would just say the right thing, and everyone would kind of go, oh, I never thought about it that way. So Jesus always confronted injustice, so we could assume if this is an injustice, and it is, that Jesus would confront this. At the same time, uh, Jesus came to justify Sinners, what does that mean? That word just means to make them right. So he would also be gracious to people who've done the wrong thing. So there's a tension that's there for us. Now you've got to understand that Jesus was very pro-woman. Now that sounds uh, nice today because there's all kinds of movements for women and, and feminists and there's all this pressure in a sense to give women a, a different place. But you've got to understand that in Jesus' day, women weren't second-class citizens. They were third- or fourth-class citizens. They were quite literally a man's property. If a woman observed a crime and she was the only witness to the crime and the person was taken to court because of the crime, uh, but she was the only witness to the crime, the woman's testimony was not allowed in court because it was invalid. It was not taken seriously. Uh, women's opinion meant nothing. And Jesus, in a context like that, was incredibly pro-woman. There's a famous story of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus goes to their house, and Martha does what in that day the woman was supposed to do and cooks and cleans while Jesus sits and teaches. And Mary, her, her younger sister, goes and sits at Jesus' feet, and Martha gets mad and says, hey, Jesus, tell my sister Mary that she's not doing what a woman's supposed to do. Tell her to get up and serve. 
And Jesus says, she's chosen the better part. Now, this was one of my very first sermons when I had no idea how to communicate publicly at all, and I didn't understand the scriptures. I, ta- I, I used this passage, and I didn't understand what was really going on. And what was really going on is Jesus was saying to her, women have a place as my disciples, because what a man would do would be to sit at the feet of the teacher. That was the man's place to show that he was a disciple. And Jesus was saying, women can also be my disciples. That was a radical statement in that day. Uh, there was a woman at a well, uh, in another famous story. Women in the afternoon, women didn't go to the well in the afternoon. They went in the morning. This was an ostracized woman. Men didn't interact with women. And the disciples had left to go into town to find something to eat, and they came back, and they were surprised to find Jesus talking to a woman. There was a woman that had an issue of blood. She had a bleeding uh, ulcer. We don't really know what it was, but for a number of years. And men never touched women. You didn't ever do that. Uh, And he touched her. Jesus had an incredibly high view of the place of women and their worth and their value in contrast to the society around him that put them as third or fourth class citizens. So much so that Paul, who wrote a whole bunch of the letters in the New Testament, he said in multiple places when he would write letters to churches, taking Jesus' example, he said, listen, now, because of Jesus in Christ, there is neither male nor female. In other words, you can no longer hold on to your categories where you say men are more important than women. You can't do it anymore because Jesus has changed all that. Now, we've got to understand when we're talking about power, um, you've got to understand the nature of power and what it has a tendency to do to people. It doesn't always do this, but it has a tendency to do this. Um, I've got my very simple definition of power. I think you can uh, see this or at least agree with this in, in some sense. But here's, here's my definition of power. Power is the ability to decide. What I mean by that is the person who makes the decisions in any setting is the person with the power. Would you agree with that? At work, whoever makes the decisions, that's the person with the power. At home, whoever makes the decisions, that's the person with the power. But power has this weird way of changing how we interact. Uh, In fact, power has a tendency to make you believe everything you want is normal and nothing anyone else wants is okay. Another simpler way to say that is that power can blind you to the fact that other people exist. I'm in charge. I get to decide. Your opinion means nothing. Jerry Sandusky was on the coaching staff of Penn State University football. And a number of years ago, what he did in his abuse of his ability to decide has now landed him in prison for the rest of his life, rightfully so. Bill Cosby, all kinds of accusations came out against him. This is a, a scene from um, the show that he did in the 90s. I loved, I loved it. Uh, it was my favorite show. This was probably my favorite scene from the show when he teaches his son how to carve the turkey, if you remember that. I remember hysterically laughing with my entire family watching this scene right here, and then all these years later to realize that all these horrible things, this man was using his ability to decide, being the decider in scenarios and abusing women. Now, we can write off those guys, ah, the high-profile guys, they don't, you know, I don't do that. But we, as men, we have to turn the mirror on ourselves, and we have to look in the mirror, because if power is the ability to decide, listen, guys, who usually decides in any scenario when there's a man and a woman? It's usually us men. We're usually the ones that have the ability to make the decisions. So what would Jesus say to men who are in power? 
Well, Matthew chapter 25, looked at it a few weeks ago before Christmas. Jesus said that whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. The least of these are the people who don't have the ability to decide or they've had the power to decide taken away from them. And the person who is in power is the decider and that person who's the least of these is not allowed to make a decision. Listen, this whole harassment thing that women are saying happens all the time that we're blind to, we don't want to admit that it even happens. What they're saying is men have decided to do things that we didn't want. We took a survey and 179 people have now taken it. It's anonymous. You can take it. Uh, it's on my Facebook page, Scott Marshall. You can search for that and find it. 83% of the, and there were predominantly women who took the survey, 83% said some man pinched, poked, touched, or groped them without their asking. Now, and listen, I've had enough conversations with men and I've listened to enough men defend themselves and what they think women want that the man didn't realize he was in power. He decided that that was okay and that she probably wanted that. And what they're saying, what women are saying to us men is, no, we did not make that. We did not make that decision. You made that decision. You, you're the one that decided to harass us. And here's what Jesus would say to men with power. If you did that to them, you did that to me. Now, maybe that means nothing to you because you say, well, I'm not, I don't follow Jesus or I'm not really a religious person. Okay, think about it like this. Let's say you went off to war and you fought a battle and your buddy was there and you went through battles together and he saved your life. You would never think to violate him in any way or anyone that he was concerned with, would you? You would never go, I'll, why? Because he rescued you. Now, I'm, I'm going to paint this picture for you a little bit later in the message of how Jesus has rescued you. And he's saying, listen, if you're doing it to the least of these, you're doing it to me, the one who rescued you. Brings us to the second question. What do men who follow Jesus, what are they supposed to do with their power? I, listen, I'm, I'm not saying women are inconsequential to this, and so ladies, please hear me as I say this. I don't mean this to be offensive, but I'm convinced that men who follow Jesus are the key to changing this because we're the ones with the power who have the, usually have the ability to decide. And if we decide to become actively vocal about it and we decide to stand up for women and we decide to call out men who do this, guess what? It'll change. But the problem is that all too often, even men of faith are guilty of abusing their power. I don't have to tell you stories that you see in the news about how men in churches abuse their power. Which brings us to David. If you know the story of David, uh, he was the great king of Israel. Even the scriptures later in Acts talk about the totality of his life, not this one incident we read about. And they say that he was a man after God's own heart. And if you know the backstory, he was anointed king while Saul was the king. You can read it in 2 Samuel. Uh, he was anointed the king while Saul was the king and he came into Saul's court and Saul hated him and chased him out. And he kind of lived this almost Robin Hood-esque experience. He had this band of, of men who followed him around and, and he kind of lived this, this Robin Hood romantic kind of existence until he finally comes into power and he becomes the king and he uh, builds a temple and all these wonderful things that happen. Until one spring when most of the kings go off to war, 2 Samuel tells us, and he stays home. You can kind of picture the scene. It's at night. He can't sleep. It's probably a full moon. And around the king's palace, a flat roof, you know, you can just kind of imagine that. And he's walking around at night, 
collecting his thoughts, thinking about things, and, and the wealthy would have lived around him. And so he looks down, and there, probably in the full moonlight, is a woman who is bathing. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know there were laws. If a woman had gone through her monthly cycle, she was supposed to ritually clean herself. And Bathsheba was on the roof, and where they would have, you, know, you would have walked up, that was how you had air conditioning, and would have been cleaning herself in preparation for worship. In other words, she was doing this so that the next day she could go to church. And David sees her and says, she's very beautiful, and so sends a messenger and says, who is that? Who's my neighbor? Oh, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Go get her. It's not hard to make the case, because again, who has, who has the power in this story? Who's the one that makes the decisions? It's not Bathsheba. I don't think it's an inaccurate reading of this story to say that this was a case of rape. What happens next is she sends him a message and she says, I am pregnant. Well, this is a scandal a bit for the king. So we didn't read this part, but you could read it more in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And what he does, he says, I know I'll solve this. I I know what I'll do. And so he sends for her husband who's off to battle where he should have been and brings him and says, hey, Uriah, how has it gone in battle? Oh, you're one of my great warriors. How's it been? Oh, it's been great, my king. You know, we fought and you know what? I'm so proud of you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to relax. I want you to see your wife. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And Uriah says, how could I do that? My men are serving you. I could never do that. And David tries to get him to go. He won't do it. And that night he sleeps on the floor with the king's servants. The next day, David tries again. He gets a little bit of alcohol in him. He says, now go home. Still, his sense of loyalty and duty won't do it. David sees that this is going to come out. You can't hide that. You can't hide a pregnant woman. And so he, sends a, he writes a note, and he seals it with his seal, with the seal of the king, and he wraps it up, and he hands it to Uriah. and says, take this to Joab, the commander of the army. In the note, it says, listen, when the fighting is the fiercest, when the best warriors from the Ammonites are there, when they're there, and they're fighting at their worst, I want you to put Uriah right there. And at the moment when it's the fiercest, I want you to pull everybody back and you let Uriah fight the battle because he's such a brave warrior. That's what happens. And Uriah dies. Now, if you know Uriah, there's there's another layer to the story that you don't read unless you go further and you read all of the life of David all the way through 2 Samuel. And then at the very end, the narrative in chapter 23 and 24 goes backward a little bit and says, this is the record of David's mighty men. And there were 38 uh, of his key soldiers, three of which were the three mighty men who were his kind of personal guard. And then the other 35 were kind of his broader personal guard who looked after his affairs and the men he could trust the most. And you can read their list, and it tells their exploits, and it goes through all 30, you know, 31, 32, 33, and name, names all of them, and it gets down to number 38. And you know what number 38 is? The last verse of the line. Number 38, you know who, you know who the last person that is listed right there for effect? And Uriah the Hittite. In other words, he not only raped a woman, but he did it on the back of his man who has protected him all of his life and dedicated himself. I mean, what a despicable act. Now, here's what happens next. A guy named Nathan, who's a prophet of the Lord, comes in and tells David a story. 
And he says, um, David, uh, there was a man in your kingdom, a, r- a rich man, and in his town there was a poor man, and the poor man had one little lamb. And he cared for that lamb as though it was his own, and he did everything that he could to care for this lamb and love this little lamb. And when the rich man had some travelers come and need hospitality, and then the rich man had a large flock, the rich man went to the poor man's house and took the lamb and killed it and served it to his guests. And you know how it is when we've done something and we see someone else has done the same thing that we get, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, oh, that guy did it. And so David says, that guy is going to pay. He can't do that. And you know what Nathan says to him? And this is what we need to hear as men about this whole Me Too thing. He says, you are the man. And David realizes he's been discovered. And he realizes he can no longer have his smoke screen. Now, men who follow Jesus, what they do is they own up to their weaknesses, their inadequacies, their sins, and their abuses. Now, here's the million-dollar question. How do they do that? I need you to hear, men, the perspective of women in this, uh, just what it's like to be a woman. And so I've invited three ladies who are part of our church to come up, who are just really successful professionally ladies who are coming up. They're coming up right now um, to tell us their experience. So would you just welcome them as they come up? So uh, this is Chandra, and Chandra, uh, for 20 or so years, worked in the finance industry. She was a vice president at one point, and uh, now she's our director of operations here at the church. And um, next to her is Sharon. Sharon, 38, 40 years in the automotive advertising world. And then Kelly, uh, on the end, is a lawyer. Um, And so I've got an ignorant question as a man, because I don't have your experience as, as women. Uh, the saying is that this is a man's world and women are just living in it. Do you find that, have you found that to be true? I'm going to ask you to start, Kelly. So um, in the legal profession specifically, that is still largely true. Um, I looked up some statistics to share with you right now, well, in 2017, about 36% of the legal profession is made up of women. And specifically in the area that I work, which is litigation or trial work, in Indiana, only 18% of litigators are women. So I do often find myself in a room full of men, including male judges, men as my opponent in court, and also men who are my colleagues. I work for two men, so in, in the legal world, yes, that's still true. But it's getting better. Yeah. <laughs> it has gotten better, so because of women who have come before me. Sure, Sharon, what about you? Um, I definitely think it's getting better. I was raised in a man's world um, when I grew up and started my career. You would never find women in management at all. Um, now I think it's getting better. I was put into management, but not until a woman was over me. Hmm. So I, I do think it's getting better in the business world. As far as the social, personal world, I'm not sure. For your experience, do you think 
that you would have ever broken that ceiling if a woman hadn't already done it ahead of you, or what do you? Um, no, I don't think. Uh, our newspaper was bought out, and this company had already had women in power, hmm. and um, they actually got rid of the mean men and hired some women, and hmm. uh, I don't think if I didn't have that chance, I would have been able to move forward hmm. in the company. I don't. Uh, I think that it is uh, it is still a man's world in, in some instances. It is getting better. Um, a couple of things that I think are still true today are uh, the pay disparity. Women as a, a whole are paid less than their male counterparts. Um, and I found that to be true my whole career. Um, and so that's something that um, is still alive today. I think because women are still seen as supplemental earners so there's automatically assumed that there's a, a male head of the household that is the primary earner and the women is kind of a supplemental earner. Um, in so many cases today, I think with women being head of household, uh, single parents and that type of thing, um, there's a need for more awareness for that. So. Yeah. And you were saying yesterday when we talked about this that you even had you had the same kind of scenario, Sharon, that there was a woman manager and that that was when your career took off? Yes. When I worked... Um, the first 10 years of my finance career, I had all male bosses. Um, and while I was able to progress, it wasn't until I worked for a female um, that my career kind of took off and I was able to sit at the table and make decisions and um, strategic planning and, and things that actually helped move the company forward. Um, but the last 10 years of my career, um, I had more promotions and I had more than doubled my salary working under a woman. Do you think that would have been different if it had been a man? Do you think that would have ever happened or no? No, I don't think so. Okay. So have you had to work harder, you feel, than a man to reach what you've reached to this point in your career? Kelly, what do you, what do you say to that? I think, uh, I think women in my profession do have to work harder. Um, you have to establish yourself among your male peers. Um, you have to establish your authority because it is an authoritative uh, field um, in order to earn respect from your male colleagues. And so in order to do that, at least my own personal experience, I work very hard to over-prepare so that I don't find myself in a position where most of the time a man on the other side might have more knowledge or more authority on the topic than I do because I don't want that to be used against me or I don't want to be manipulated in that way. So I do uh, find that I, I think women have to work extra hard in order to establish their authority in my field. And have you had some instances where people don't take your opinion because you're a woman? I know you're telling a story about. Yes, so issue. there's a couple examples of that. Um, I have had clients contact the office and specifically say that they only wanted a male attorney because they thought they would be more aggressively represented by a man. And thankfully, where I work, I have a level of authority myself, and I have great male mentors who support me, um, who supported me when I told that person they needed to call a different law firm, that we were not interested in taking that case. So um, I do have support, which a lot of women um, don't have. So I'm, I'm fortunate for that. But I have also had instances where 
myself and my uh, male colleague who I have 12 years of experience and he has three and the two of us will be sitting in the room and having a conversation with someone and they're only talking to him and they're not talking to me or I will say something and it will get dismissed and then he will say the same exact thing and then suddenly that's truth and so um, I notice that to be the case as well still yeah Sharon for you same uh, yes I want to say um, as a as a person in sales I often dealt with not just my company but I had to go out you know to businesses and sell advertising and um, the men in power in the businesses um, treated me very differently than the men salespeople. And um, if you own a business, let me tell you that women just don't enjoy being hit on all the time. And I experienced that so much. And I also walked away from business. Um, two different times I can remember walking away from uh, one would, would have been a new business and then the other one was a a pretty lucrative account that I had and I finally went to my management and said I don't want to go in there anymore and they s assigned it to a, a male salesperson um, but and then inside of the business world when our company was joined with the Chicago paper um, they kept me in management but they put me with a team that was all men so my boss was a man and the other three bosses that were my same, on the same level as I was were men, and I was the only woman. I was the oldest, and I had the most experience out of all of them, yet I earned less money. I didn't get the things that they got ex as far as like getting a, my cell phone paid for and things like that. And in our meetings, um, I would bring up great ideas. I had great ideas. I mean, before them, I started a section in the newspaper, and you know, I was quite successful. They dismissed me entirely, and like she said, another one of the men managers would bring up the same idea and be like, oh, that's great, you know? So um, it doesn't make you feel good, you know, when that mm. kind of stuff happens, especially after you've worked so many years and worked so hard. Sure. Shana, the same or no? Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that um, as women, we tend to try and overanalyze and prepare for things, just kind of as a general nature of being moms and caretakers. Um, but when you bring that to the workplace, um, I, f I always would find that I would be overprepared or spend more hours getting ready for meetings and that types of things. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the first service, I think that um, women are expected to hold themselves at a different level in meetings. And I, I speak from the management position when I would be at that table. Um, if if they, I walked in on a meeting and they were all talking about a television show, that was perfectly acceptable. But if I would have come in talking about the same thing or a celebrity or some thing that was off topic, then that would be frowned upon as like, why does she really need to be here? She's not bringing anything valuable. And so mm. it was always um, important for me to prepare and to be ready and to always be professional and worry about what I said and how I said it and present myself well so that yeah. I could make way for those yeah. behind me. What would you say, just kind of as you're going here, uh, to both the men in the room? What, what message would you want to leave them with? And then what would you want to say to the women who are here to encourage them? I will start with you, Shonda. Okay. Uh, to the men, I think um, treat everyone with respect, but if you are in a position of power, um, whether that's in your home or your workplace, um, ask the women 
their opinion because a lot of times uh, women are um, a little more introverted. Um, they're slower to speak up about things. And so um, you can find and learn a lot by just asking and, and evaluating their opinion. Um, that's a big deal. Um, also, if you're a male and you're in charge of salary, look at your, do some salary administration. Look at the people that work under you. Do your women make the same as the men with the same experience? If they don't, you should fix that. Um, to the women, if you feel like you're being oppressed, you should speak up. Um, if you have been successful, find someone to mentor and help. Um, if you need a mentor, reach out. I'm sure any of us would talk to you or help you. Um, but don't be afraid to speak up if you feel like you're being taken advantage of. Um, and this isn't necessarily, I don't feel like the Me Too movement is a whining, crying um, bunch of people. I feel like it's just um, the climate is is ready to hear more stories about what's happening. There's been a lot of generations, and unfortunately, I think um, men don't realize. They just grew up in a household where the male was dominant and the wife did the housework, and so um, we're kind of coming out of that, and both people are working and making the housework, and so we're just changing the culture, and so that's what a lot of these conversations are about, not necessarily to point the finger, but just to open, open their eyes. Um, I agree. I think, and there's a, you know, when I talk about the men that were not good, there are a lot of great men out there. I had a lot of, I had some bosses that were wonderful to me. Um, but to the men, I would say, like she did, to treat everybody equal. God loves me as much as he loves the most powerful person in the world. Um, and to women, or also to men, I want to say, uh, be careful how you treat women or, uh, around your children because I believe that a lot of men grew up that way, and that's why they treat women the way they do. So your children always watch you, and if you want your son or daughter to treat people kindly and with respect, make sure that's what they see at home. Um, also for men, uh, if your wife has a career and is in the workforce, um, don't make her, when she gets home from work, take over all of the responsibilities of the home. Um, share that load with her because she's worked just as hard as you have and she's just as tired as you have. If your, woman, if your wife does not work and is just stays home and takes care of the house and the children, treat her with respect because what she does is very important also. Um, and then for women, again, speak up. Don't keep it inside. Don't suffer silently talk about it and uh, reach out to people and stand up for yourself because that's what got me through my whole career was um, being not strong maybe on the outside when I'm on the inside and standing up for myself. So I think for women and men, uh, just be aware of stereotypes. Don't assume that when the woman walks into the meeting that she's only there to take notes. <laughs> because I've experienced that. Um, so view everyone equally. Give women an opportunity for advancement, the deserving women an opportunity for advancement if you're a man in power or a man who's running a business. Um, for those men out there who are already doing that, thank you. We appreciate you. We all need your support. Um, and for women who are aspiring to be in the business world, the, the young women, 
um, you can do it. It is possible, and you will find people who will support your journey, and uh, you will find women and male mentors along the way. Um, and for women who are feeling um, treated unfairly, speak up for yourself, because that's the only way that it will change, is if you speak up for yourself. Yeah. I'll say thanks to them. Okay, so we've sliced the patient open. We're not gonna just leave you on the table. We're gonna sew you back up. Let me tell you where we get the power, just quickly. Where do we get the power to, as men to do this differently? I'll tell you where not to get the power. Uh, this is not an occasion for you to engage in uh, reform and remorse, which means, translates to, I'm gonna try harder and I'm gonna feel really bad. No one ever changes because they tried harder and they felt really bad. That's certainly a religious response. We have in Psalm chapter 51, the response of David to what Nathan said. In fact, if you read the Psalm later today, uh, it'll say it, what David said in response to Nathan the prophet. And it's a Psalm of confession. And there's some beautiful words in there. Uh, as I was reading this and I was thinking about David's life, I realized he's praying a prayer of reform and remorse and he's making promises to God and he's saying what he won't do and he says some beautiful things. He says, have mercy on me, O God, and created me a clean heart and he promises God that I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and he ends the prayer and says, may it please you to prosper Zion. Zion was a word for Jerusalem. In other words, please don't let what I'm doing suffer. <laughs> I've prayed those kinds of prayers. That doesn't get you anywhere. That, that, that just makes you feel worse. The response instead is to pause and to look at Jesus. Jesus treated women right. And what Jesus does is he asks men and women to follow him, women who are victimized and men who have done wrong. And what he does is he offers forgiveness and healing. Now you may say, well, that lets men off the hook. They, they don't have to be accountable. No, men still have to be accountable for what they've done if they've, uh, they've been abusive or they've harassed. But here's, just listen, if this seems unfair to you, how else does this change unless the guys doing all of the bad stuff are redeemed from their sin? When you redeem something, you buy it back. You take it back to a different state. If men who are doing this are not taken back from that to a different state, this never changes. But if those men are taken back to a different state and they find the forgiveness of God for what they've done, then they have the courage to face what they've done. It's why men in prison often they'll have a jailhouse, not everyone, but they'll have a jailhouse experience because they have no crutches anymore. They're no, they have no image to protect. They're like, listen, I got here. And when you find the grace and the forgiveness of God, it gives you the courage to face what you've done. God doesn't erase our sins. What God does is God redeems our sins. And this is how the Me Too, this is how the Me Too thing, this is how it ends. Me Too ends when men find out they are forgiven by a gracious God and so they find the courage from Jesus to change their ways. Let me say that to you again. Me Too ends when men find out they're forgiven by a gracious God and so find the courage from Jesus to change their ways. And then this is the way you approach that. This is how you get the power. Is you just find the grace and the forgiveness of God. Jesus taught us to pray this way in Matthew chapter 6. He said, don't, don't make this posturing before God and prompt, make all these promises. Just, just say, forgive us our debts. Because God stands ready to forgive. That's Jesus on the cross. To forgive the debts, to heal the victims, and to give you then the ability as a man to go to a woman and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I own what I did. That's how this changes. 
So I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. As a man, this may be you. You may need forgiveness from God and you may need the courage to apologize to some women in your life. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to pray the prayer, uh, you can, in your own mind and heart, pray the same prayer. And this can be a new day for you and we can make a change in this entire thing as a church and as men. So would you bow your heads with me? And I'll lead you in this prayer. You can just repeat this in your mind and heart. Dear God, as a man, I've been wrong. I've used my power to get what I want. And I've abused or harassed or hurt women. And so I need your forgiveness. And I need the, cur- I need the courage to ask them for forgiveness. I'm not going to try and posture. I'm not going to try and promise. I'm just going to count on your grace. So thank you that you came for people like me. Help me to do this different. In your name I pray it. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. We leave you with a blessing. When we go, there'll be a prayer team down front. If you want to talk to anybody about this, man or woman, uh, there'll be some folks down front you can talk to after the service. Uh, we always leave you with this blessing, and it's our way of just sending you. And so if you'd like to receive it, you'll see people holding their hands out like this. If you are comfortable with that, please receive this blessing. May you know the God of love who brings healing to the victims and change and transformation to the ones who did the victimizing. You're sent out of love, God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See you next week.